after the number of weeks that we have been going, yet we're still not even halfway through. It's a long narrative. So much is in there. It's so rich with stories, events, seeing how God worked over the ages. We're up to chapter 14 today, uh, which is an interesting point. Because it's this particular story, perhaps, that is one of the more familiar ones, not only from the book of Exodus, but from the whole Bible. And sometimes that familiarity presents a challenge. Uh, sometimes you hear a story and it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I do that. Or, or perhaps as we've been tracking through Exodus, uh, you, you've, you're thinking of the movie The Ten Commandments and you're hearing Charlton Heston's voice. Uh, whatever he, he says, behold his mighty hand, and you hear all the music and everything like that, all that comes back to you remembering that. Or perhaps your point of reference uh, might be the, the, the movie The Prince of Egypt. Uh, I confess I have not seen that. I know my, my theology is greatly lacking in confessing that, but I haven't. Um, but sometimes these, these familiar things, sometimes it can be a, a, a hindrance almost to us. I was talking last week. Um, with our children, director of children's ministries, Aaron Winter, he was saying how, how he sometimes, you know, you sit down and you tell the kids a story. Come around, let's, let's tell a story. And as soon as you step into it and say the, the name, one of the kids is going to step on and say, oh, I know, he said this, and then she did that, and then God did this. And you're like, thanks, thanks, you know. I, I was I was going to tell that story, but you already did. So I, I feel a little bit like that today, uh, with the story of of uh, from the book of Exodus. But let's not let over familiarity with the story prevent us from seeing God at work and realizing that in some new way He can be at work in our lives today. See, even though it was over three thousand years ago. The very God that we worship today, the God that you just prayed to, is the same God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. It was, it was God's divine exit strategy that we heard about last week from Aaron. But it's coming to a point where this week it's interrupted by a divine detour. It's God's actions revealing the human heart and mind with all of its multiple distractions and all of the ability to multitask, while often, as we just saw, ignoring the very one who gives us the life and breath and our very reason for existence. See, his detours have purpose. They may not make sense, they're usually not very comfortable, and they often involve taking risk. And when you put all those three together, you and I respond just like the Israelites. Uh, no thanks. We'd rather just stay here where it's nice and safe. But the fact that it's a divine detour means that it can't be ignored. And following the detour or not is a difference between obedience and disobedience, between living life to its fullest or living it for myself, or between the difference between offering a completely surrendered heart to God or one that's divided. 
Now, all that Christianese I just said sounds real good, but the question is, so what? That so what might come today or tomorrow when you return to your daily life, when you return to your family, when you return to your job, when you turn, return to your daily responsibilities, and it is at that point that it's got to mean something. So let's look at the passage today and see what God has for us, turn to Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to be reading this passage, the whole chapter. That's the whole story, the narrative. And you recall how we've arrived at this point, beginning actually back in Genesis, when God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you this land. And in order to do that, he sends Joseph and 70 of his closest relatives to Egypt. And they spend hundreds of years there as God prepares them. And then God makes them uncomfortable to the point where they cry out to him and he listens. He raises up and appoints a deliverer, Moses. And then he designs a very unique method for this deliverance, ten plagues. And now he's in the process of moving an entire nation of people, thousands of people, out from under slavery into a completely different land, the promised land, bringing all of their possessions, plus some of the Egyptians' belongings, with them without loss of life. That would be under the category of can't be done, humanly speaking. Remember the background back in chapter 13 Before we get into 14, the Israelites are already on their way. They've packed up. They've left their familiar surroundings. Now, sometimes we think of this, you know, it's, oh, yeah, you're going to go on a camping trip. No, 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 no. This is way more than that, okay? Or you even think, oh, yeah, I've moved before. I know what that's like. No, 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 no. This is like taking the entire city of Chicago and saying, we're all moving to Detroit. Okay, some of you don't like Detroit. Okay, somewhere else then, okay? Uh, but but it's, it's moving entire nation of people to a different place and a place that they don't know where it is. They haven't been there. Uh, so we're trying, to, we're trying to, you know, grasp the logistics here. Is this possible? God, are you sure about this? See, when I go somewhere, I, I don't use GPS. Uh, I, I like to Google map things. And you get the Google map, map, and once I get that in my head, I can pretty much get a picture of where we're going. Uh, for my job, I have to Google map and street view, and I like to look and see everything about it. I know what that looks like. I know the parking is over here. I can see everything about it. But in this case, they're moving to a completely different country they've never been to, knew nothing about, and didn't know the way. And look how this divine strategy that God has for them becomes a divine detour. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. But, but, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where? They're heading out. Okay, they're all accomplished that. Everybody's packed up, moving in the same direction. And then God says, turn around. Hello? What's going on? You can just hear this in the situation room. 
Okay, Moses' situation room, I'm sure he had one, or tent. Um, you know, he's, he's talking to people and they're telling him, all his advisors, this is not prudent. It's not recommended strategically. We can't support such a high-risk maneuver. You can hear that? Okay? But, but see, this is God's directive. Now, as far as the location, many scholars over the years have tried to pinpoint the exact route the Israelites took here as well as the point at which they crossed the sea. But I tell you what, after almost 4,000 years, this is so far yet impossible. Uh, From the language in the verse, however, we know that they were heading toward the land of Canaan, and they turned back. And where they stopped, it was at a point that made them extremely vulnerable. There's a great body of water, commonly known as the Red Sea. In the Hebrew, it's the Sea of Reeds. Whatever it is, it's a huge body of water. It's in front of them, and then it's surrounded by flat land, no mountains to run to, no place to hide. So that puts them in a very vulnerable spot. God intends this maneuver to cause Pharaoh, once he hears of it, to say, where are they? And think that they're confused. That's not the way to Canaan. See, God is setting the stage for the final episode of the season. It's not the grand finale. It's when they cross and go into the promised land. But this particular story today is the final episode of the season. God lays it out for Moses in these verses. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue the Israelites. I will gain honor over Pharaoh. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Laid it all out there right for him. And how? God's very puzzling actions two of them, he redirects the people of Israel, positioning them in a place of extreme vulnerability and the strong likelihood of complete annihilation. And then he also hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he would pursue with all of his military, kind of like the shock and awe of Egypt. It would seem that these circumstances meant sure defeat. This God who brought all these disasters upon Egypt, is now poised, it seems, to destroy the Hebrews as well. Probably thought was there, he set us up. What other conclusion could you come to? But there in those few verses, one through four, God lays out for Moses what he has planned and why. See, this is God's plan, not Moses and Aaron's plan. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, and then encamped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Okay, so verse 5, just after a few days. Remember, Moses and Aaron said, let us go three days into the wilderness. Just after a few days, in the midst of all the chaos of Egypt, the destroyed countryside, the mourning for the, for the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh suddenly realizes... <coughs> What have I done? I let them go. Second thoughts. He's lost control over thousands of people. He's lost an entire workforce, free labor, and loss of power. So what does he say? Get my chariot. Ah, This is serious. He's going too. 
Okay? Get my chariot. Plus, on top of this, 600 of the top fighting machines in Egypt. This is the M1 Abrams tank. Meaning, there was really no fighting force that could even come close to this. Plus, on top of that, all of the other chariots. Wow. Against thousands of men, women, and children on foot, no military experience or training, and inferior weaponry. And in verse 9, in no time at all, the vastly superior Egyptian forces overtook them and blocked any escape. To the front, wide open water, surrounding them, Egyptian forces. Beginning in verse 10, now through the end of the chapter, the narrative covers just a matter of a few hours. Up to this point, chapter 1 through this point, actually covers a, a couple hundred years. But now, it's just a matter of hours. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, this particular narrative doesn't focus so much on the battle strategy. Uh, later on, if you were to read Joshua, um, you'd see some of the battle strategy that God lays out for him. This doesn't. The most important component in the survival of the people, for the people of Israel, God's presence and their corresponding trust in him. That's what God was looking for. The natural response is fear. They voiced that fear to Moses and to God. Notice the nature of their crying out. Okay, crying out in some context means prayer. But the nature of their crying out here is complaint and despair versus faith and hope. The application there. Do we do that sometimes? Our crying out to God is more of of complaint and despair rather than prayer of faith and hope. But you know what? God is gracious. Amen? He's so gracious because he listens to us just like he did the people of Israel. And he answers. Even though we tend to complain and despair, he answers. Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, note something here. They they did obey. You see at the end of verse 4, the simple words, and they did so. They did obey. They did go on the detour. However, it wasn't a wholehearted obedience because there was complaining there as well. See, it's like us. We, we say, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to complain and blame in the process. God looks for an undivided heart. And he's gracious with us in that he teaches us the significance of that undivided heart over time. And look at two other things, two very significant pronouns here. Back in verse 5, 
the Egyptians were asking themselves, what have we done? Circle that little pronoun, we. And then drop down to verse 11. Here, the Israelites asking Moses, what have you done? Neither are recognizing yet. (laughs) It has nothing to do with them. What is God doing? See that? It's what God is doing. He is at work. He has been at work. He continues to be at work. And what caused the Israelites to say this in verses 11 and 12? It's fear. Fear of death. Fear of annihilation. It's a failure to fully trust. Fear creeps in like that sometimes. You don't even realize it's there. That's the frightening thing about it. It's like, I'm not, you're aware of the condition hypothermia, where somebody slowly freezes to death. It affects their cognitive ability. It, parts of your body shut down. In fact, sometimes people even will take their clothes off thinking they're somehow too hot. And they can't think straight. That's what hypothermia is. And the people had just observed ten plagues. They had seen what God had done, but fear had crept in. And their understanding of God who is rescuing them is somewhat skewed. Thinking, he's not going to be able to pull this one off. Look at Moses' leadership. Verses 13 and 14. What does he tell them? Four things. Fear not. Stand firm. See. And then at the end of 14, you have only to be silent. That's hard. I'd rather panic. You know, a situation like this, that way you're doing something at least, right? Um, that, that is hard, but God says, wait. Wow. How many times has he perhaps said that to us? And just like in the drama, we just crowd around, but oh, too many, com- we're good at complaining. We're going to do something I'm good at, yep. And he's all there all the time. Hasn't left. Always speaking. It's just up to us to stop and listen and be silent. God moves us on. When God moves us on, we will move on. Until then, we wait. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night." Here God revealed his plan to Moses, laid it out for him again. It's something supernatural. It's that same staff holding it out over the water to divide it. And he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now this is, again, something difficult to understand. Pastor Ralph talked about this a few weeks ago, how God in his sovereignty chooses to do this. This is clearly God's sovereignty. Look at Romans um, Well, don't turn there now, but look at uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Paul writes about this. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And going on, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's from Exodus chapter 9. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Our human mind is unable to fully grasp the divine. It's necessary to trust in God in attempting to understand these truths. Here in these verses, the reality is in Exodus that even man's rebellion can point toward God. He even uses that for his glory. I tell you, it's it also seems evident that the most challenging aspect of our sinful existence is our own hardness of heart. It inflicts us as well. You can attempt to change your behavior. You can change for you, you can pray for behavioral change in others, but at the very root of our thoughts, our motives, and our words, and our actions is the condition of the heart. And it follows that the first and foremost request, prayer request for ourselves is, search me, O God, and know my heart. And then when we pray for others, we pray for a responsive heart. That will affect everything else. Think of that. Often we pray with well-meaning, wanting God to somehow change a person or change a situation. But at the root of all of that, whatever it is, the chaos that's going on around us, there is a heart condition that we need to pray and say, God, I know you're at work. I pray that, whether it be for me or that person I'm praying for, that there will be a response, there will be a softening of the heart. Sometimes if you don't know what else to pray for, for a person, pray for that. The softening of the heart. Let's move on. Verse 18. The Egyptians will know. This is the why. There will be no doubt. The, the plagues in some cases, in some cases, they're just annoyances. Uh, that's annoying. Frogs everywhere. Bugs, you name it. In this case, you won't forget this one. Okay? It's an act of God that all of Egypt will know. Verses 19 and 20, God's protection and the assurance of his presence. It's that pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, blocking the Egyptians and illuminating the people of Israel. And then verse 21, here it is, the miracle of Exodus. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea, land, uh, the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This is God's power. The climax of the narrative, the image that we see most often, the strong east wind carving out a dry path through the water, and it's an event that has been told and retold over the centuries. 
referenced over 100 times in Scripture. <laughs> you know the hard part? Probably that first step. Right? It's crucial. The people of Israel asking themselves, should we do this? Is it safe? No time to hesitate. But this is not a leap of faith. I want to make that clear. It's a step of faith. See, a step of faith is when you already know the God who is inviting you into his path, dry path. He's already proven himself faithful. They've seen that over hundreds of years and through the ten plagues. We have all sorts of scripture. We have a whole Bible. Thousands of years of writing. And so when we step out in faith, it is a step of faith. A leap of faith means you have no idea. This is a step of faith. We do know. God has revealed it to us. And when he invites us to step in, just as he did with the people of Israel, with both feet. <laughs> okay? I'm not leaving one foot in Egypt. Um, I think I'll commute. doesn't work that way. No. Both feet. All the way through, even with the towering water, uh, walls of water on either side. See, some people, unfortunately, approach the Christian life this way. I'm going to keep one foot, just in case. I'll tell you what, there is no such position. The next day, there were either bloated corpses floating in the water or Israelites staying safe on dry land. There's nobody with one foot in the water. The time being, it may seem to work for us, but the water in some cases hasn't come down yet. There will be a day when believers are separated from the unbelievers, and there will be some who say, what? I was standing with the Christians. Yes, but your foot was with the Egyptians. This divine exit strategy and divine detour were part of God's plan and actually are a foreshadowing of the New Testament message of salvation. Christ's resurrection makes it possible for us to enter into eternal life. When we're still on this side of the sea, it doesn't seem logical. How could simply taking a step of faith mean the difference between life and death? Look what happens next, verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had walked, that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What an amazing... Can you imagine if you were standing there watching this? Again, we've heard this story over and over again, but my goodness, to be able to walk through on dry ground, get out on the other side, and the very army that you feared so much poised for complete annihilation, it suddenly is covered with water and you see the corpses and the horses and everything else floating in the water. Wow! What a God who did this. It would convince any person. And that's what God intended. 
That's exactly what God intended. He says, I want people to know that I am God. And see, this is not just Israel's physical deliverance. It's also also their spiritual transformation. Where it says that they believed God, that's the same phrase used of Abraham back in Genesis 15. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was their spiritual transformation as well. This is at the point at which they crossed over both physically and spiritually. And we all know, well, the path after that wasn't without stumbling for 40 years, just like it is for us. But it was a saving faith. What's your crossing point? Do you remember? Do you tell the story to others? Now, maybe this all sounds too mystical for you. Let me me break it down. See, there is a God who is holy, all-powerful. He's pure, fully trustworthy. We as human beings, we're not. We're sinful. Every single one of us says in Romans 3.23. And because of that, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. What worse kind of death could there be? So God provided a way. He said, I'm going to send my son, my only son, my begotten son. And in your place, you sinners, he's going to die and take on you the sins, on on himself, the sin, your sins. And because of that, when you place your faith in that, instead of all the good things you're trying to do, and understand who that holy God is and the fact that there is Jesus Christ who actually did live, died, was buried, rose again and ascended on high, and there's a Holy Spirit who indwells us, then we have eternal life with Him. That's the crossing over for us. That's what every one of us needs to do and to hear. God accomplished His objective with the crossing of the Red Sea. And the objective was that we would all know that He is God. When Israel crossed over, their independence of Egypt's power was sealed. Never would they have to be concerned about the Egyptians again. No longer slaves, no longer control, no longer oppressed, no longer living in fear. They were free and dependent instead upon God. When you got up this morning and prayed, did you realize you were talking to the God of the universe, the very one who parted the Red Sea? Or maybe your prayers are more composed or or entirely composed, perhaps, of making your life more comfortable and God no more detours. See, we can't avoid the risk and the detours, even to the point of making it our life goal. And we can go along grudgingly complaining and whining all the way. Or we can be following God Faithfully, consistently, daily, hourly, so that when a detour sign pops up, we're there. What's your high risk? What's your detour? For each person is different. Many years ago, I had my job, I had my boss come and tell me, bump me out of my comfort zone and say, you're going to lead a group of students to the Philippines. For a missions trip. 
I'll take him on a camping trip, but really? Are you sure about this? Now, what, 10, 15 years later, God has proved himself faithful year after year, being able to do that, that privilege. And every one of us has a different risk, has a different detour. For some, it might be simply a relationship that needs to be restored. For some, it might mean going to somebody and asking forgiveness for something. For some, it might be going to the person and saying, can we make this right? I don't know what your risk is. I don't know what... But God does. God understands it. And this very, very powerful God who parted the Red Sea can take care of your detour and my detour as well. It's just trusting Him. Don't try to swim through it. Don't go build a boat. Are we going to build bridges, get across this water? No. As Moses told the Israelites, stop, wait, be silent, listen, and then act, then step out in faith. That's where we need to be today. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, we realize how much we need you over and 